This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right, welcome back to Transparency, everyone. I've been uh, really looking forward to having this conversation. Um, we've got Severus um, here with me today. My co-host, uh, Aaron Terrell, unfortunately couldn't be here, um, but he uh, he says hello. And um, Severus, you are a trans man in Uganda, as well as a psychologist. And I, I believe that you um, part of your role as a psychologist is supporting trans people um, in Africa, and you have an, an organization to do that. Um, so welcome to the show, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yes, uh, thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation as well. Um, like you said, my name is Severus Oamparo. I am a trans man and psychologist based in Uganda. That's in the East African region of Africa. And um, I work with the Tala Foundation. Um, some of the work that we do at the Tala Foundation revolves around advocating for the highest attainable standard of healthcare, in particular, mental health care and well-being for gender and sexual diverse people in the country. So we have been doing this since 2017. It's been a, it's been a wild, a wild ride, but we're still here. Um, and we do this through mental health promotion, uh, prevention and treatment of illnesses where they occur uh, at a primary level. And we also do education around mental health, so some psychoeducation, both with practitioners on how to deal with uh, gender and sexual diversity, and also within the community to kind of raise mental, uh, mental health awareness in the community. And uh, lastly, we also um, use the law for strategic litigation because what we have found with our cases is usually some sort of injustice that occurs uh, and then um, individuals start looking for some sort of therapeutic service to um, ease the distress that's caused with those, ex uh, those experiences. And so, we decided to have another program that specific, specifically caters to uh, cases where we believe we can mitigate strategically. So in a nutshell, that's what we've been doing since 2017. Um, and we're still going strong. Are you yeah. representing people only within um, Uganda or um, other countries in Africa as well? Uganda for now, okay. yes. Um, if we could just switch gears for a minute, I'd, I'd love to hear a bit of your personal story um, and what your experience of, of gender dysphoria was growing up for you. And we could maybe start there and then I'm sure I'll have lots of questions. <laughs> okay. Um, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. Um, so my experience with gender dysphoria was one, I did not have the language for it. So for the longest I thought I had chronic depression, right? Um, I was just constantly down. No matter what I did, I was always down and I couldn't quite figure it out. But also I believe on a subconscious level, I didn't want to figure it out because uh, some of my early experiences involved a lot of um, stigma uh, and violence towards any type of gender expression. So every time I try to um, dress up in a more masculine fashion, I would get beaten, I'd be harassed, I'd be reminded, girls don't do that, girls don't do this, you're a girl, and to be shoved down my throat. 
And I didn't understand what that meant because in my, in my mind, I was just trying to be myself. So um, I guess on a subconscious level, I didn't want to deal with it. And I remember this one time when I was, I think about seven, I looked, I looked in the mirror and I went real close and I said, oh my God, this person's a dude, referring to myself. And it freaked me out. And I shoved that memory so down, like really down, I repressed it until around the time that I actually started exploring what it could mean for me to be trans. And that's when all these feelings that I had repressed kept coming to the surface. Um, I started getting my memories back from a, from a point from a younger age, you know, all the memories, all the violence that I experienced as a child growing up. And they just kept coming back to me. It's like I'd opened Pandora's box. Um, so growing up was hard, it was difficult. It felt like I had to hide the biggest part of me that was me. Uh, and so there was a lot of inauthenticity that I felt in my interaction socially. I felt like I couldn't connect with people authentically. Um, this was through my uh, kindergarten to college days. And it, it was very hard to form long-term bonds with people because every, it just felt like there was this thing that, was, um, that wasn't real about me, but I just couldn't figure it out. And so fast forward to um, my university years, I decided that I need to study psychology because that is the only space I felt uh, would um, make sense for me. Uh, if I was quote unquote crazy, I was going to find out. <laughs> and so that was, that was one of the motivations that I had to do psychology. And um, it's unfortunate that when I joined campus uh, university, we're being told that uh, transsexualism is a abnormal behavior and it is deviant and it is a cast among other things, which I found troublesome. But the optimistic point for me then was I actually found a term that made sense to me. And that, beca that became my, um, the beginning of my exploration of gender dysphoria, what it means. Uh, I started looking at uh, other psychologists who may be aware of this. There weren't any at that time. So I mostly had to do a lot of research on my own. I spoke to other trans people who were in the community, but it was, it was difficult to give out information because one, a lot of people were um, going on hormones uh, without doctor prescriptions. Um, they were also kind of just fumbling about and they did feel it was wise to tell people information when they weren't sure themselves. Um, and so it was a lot of fumbling in the dark to figure it out. But the more I delved deep into the research, the more it made sense to me. Um, I started to understand that, okay, actually what I'm dealing with is gender dysphoria, it's not depression. And I, I, I could have easily been misdiagnosed for the rest of my life um, if I had not figured it out. Um, and so the more I explored, the more I talked to other psychologists, the more it started to make sense to me. Eventually about, should be four years now, I decided to come out kind of I go through the social transition first of having talked to a therapist um, to explore what that meant. So the therapist wasn't also um, aware what it means to do with a trans person. They just asked me a few questions here and there. How do you feel about that? Um, they, they didn't even suggest to me that I could be trans. It just kind of came out as you know one of the things I thought I was dealing with. And so they provided a space for me to explore what that looks like. Um, and because of my background and having... I. I really love the framework, you know, where you get mental health care, 
uh, and then see how you, you know, you socially transition, see how it works out for you uh, before you go into any long-term changes. And so I did that for about a year. I had my social transition for a year. It was amazing, <laughs> yes. With each step I took, it felt like um, I was one step closer to, to who I am, to my authenticity, even when I was afraid <laughs> most of the time. I was like, oh my God, what if it's not the thing? But the more I just let myself be and let go of all the background noise, so to speak, uh, the more everything became clear. And then I started my medical transition and legal transition the next year. Uh, I went to hormones and the moment I started taking hormones, I have never felt an iota of depression <laughs> ever again. And so that for me was one of the aha moments where I realized, oh, actually, yes, this was gender dysphoria. Uh, and maybe the depression was a manifestation of not dealing with it. So yeah, so I started my medical transition. I'm about three years in. I'll be three years this year. It's been great. Um, I'm really enjoying um, my new body and my new form and how I'm perceived in, in the world. Um, it's also a total uh, flip because now I get to live in the world as a man, having been socialized female and starting to recognize all the privileges that come with that um, and the injustices that, 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 that have happened before my transition or getting a new lens to it. So. Yeah, I could go on and on about my journey. <laughs> so I already have questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. So what, um, I mean, it sounds like from what you described that gender nonconformity isn't well tolerated because you, you mentioned that, you know, you were beaten um, whenever you were dressing, you know, in, in a more masculine manner. And, and so what is what is life like for gay and lesbian people who are gender nonconforming there? Yeah. It's the same. So um, more or less the same or variations of my story. Some are worse. Um, the, 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 the positive stories are a few and far between. But um, it's, it's very dangerous to be a gender nonconforming person in the country. You will be discriminated, you'll face stigma, you'll be kicked out of your home, kicked out of your schools, uh, kicked out of your employment as soon as your sexuality, even perceived sexuality, um, even if there's no proof, but you're just perceived as other, you will lose um, um, so many, you lose your social networks, you lose so many privileges, your job, um, access to, to, to education. Some people are, are you know, subjected to conversion therapy, which is you know, attempts to cure sexual orientation and, and gender diversity in unethical ways. So there's no, um, it's not ethical at all. It's uh, corrective rape, for example, um, pri uh, trying to pray away the gay, shaming uh, and beating down, uh, beating up uh, gender and sexual diverse people, all in attempts to kind of, you know, reorient them so it's, it's very dangerous um, and the repercussions of being an out and visible gender non-conforming person are just it's terrible and so people are forced to lead double lives um, I know of someone who opts to go visit a shelter um, as opposed to their home because in the shelter at least they can express themselves and the shelter is not uh, it's, it's not a space that is um, the best space to exist either, but that just goes to show how much um, the community is willing to go to just express themselves and what they have to go through. 
uh, in terms of living double lives and, and just really trying to find a space where they can, they can be themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I've never been to, to Uganda, but I, I've been um, to two other countries in Africa. I've been to, to Kenya and South Africa. Um, <laughs> so geographically, Kenya, of course, is closest to you. And I remember um, visiting um, a little island there called Lamu. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there was an area mm-hmm. of um, the, the town in, of Lamu that, that um, was known for cross-dressing males. Um, mm. I don't remember the word that they used to describe them, but it was even in like, you know, mainstream tourism books that if you go to this neighborhood, you'll see, um, well, you may not necessarily know that they're, that they're actually biologically male because they have um, the, the burkas and they're, they're completely covered. Um, is, are there in Uganda any um, pockets of communities like that where, um, where there is, because as far as I know, like the people in Lamu, they, for the most part, they leave those people alone. Um, it, it, are there pockets in Uganda where that kind of expression is allowed? No. <laughs> so, I mean, Kenya definitely is a bit more progressive when it comes to diversity. Uganda is a bit more conservative. Um, if you can, quote unquote, pass, so if you're not, if you're not um, seen as, as a trans person, there are high chances that no one will... Um, Will attack you or violate you or try to abuse you. But the challenge comes in when you're discovered. Um, and that's when um, mob violence could be enacted upon you. You can, you can get kicked out of, we have so many cases of people being kicked out of their homes and their families. We don't have pockets, so to speak, that this is a known area where this happens. But what we do have is we have, have uh, we've had organizing, community organizing for the past 12 years and it's growing. And so uh, a lot of community members find solace in different civil society organizations or different initiatives that start up from the community themselves to kind of create spaces uh, for interaction, spaces for, for thinking, so thinking spaces to strategize on what, um, what a collective movement could look like. And so those spaces have really played a huge role in just um, a sense of belonging, uh, so to speak, a sense of purpose, um, because then people don't feel alone and abandoned, even when society abandons them. We used to have a few uh, gay bars, but those were raided in the past two years. Uh, we've had also police crackdowns and on social events for LGBT people. We've also had them cracking down in shelters, so shelter homes that are harboring um, LGBT people who are homeless. Um, police has been raiding their homes, which has not been, uh, and there've been arbitrary arrests. So we don't have specific uh, pockets where we can say, oh, this part of Uganda, people are known um, to be, for example, cross-dressers or gay men or trans women. No, we don't have those spaces. However, every now and then we'll get a rare occasion where the village will have this one trans woman or this one trans man that they know. And they use the local language to say, ah, that one is just the way they are. And we accept them. So there those, it's not a community thing. It's usually a rare, small um, section of a community in, in a remote rural area that has grown up with this person. And they, they have more liberal thoughts around life because, you know, they're not, um, it's, it's a rural setting, you know. So it's less, less, they're less prone to have, you know, violence towards each other because they know each other. It's a community. And so there are those little exceptions that happen. But aside from that, no. 
So would, sad, you, but, you know. would you say trans is more accepted than being gay there? Uh, gender nonconformity for trans men or um, masculine presenting women would be, it's, it has been brushed off as, oh, maybe they love uh, playing football or they're tomboys. Um, so for masculine or center women or masculine presenting women uh, or females and trans men, there will be a little bit of leeway for them in the sense that people will brush it off as they are um, they're spotty. However, if it's discovered that they're having some form of uh, same-sex relation, then that's when things get, uh, get violent. So uh, until the, 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 the society has proof, at least for masculine, um, masculine of center women or masculine presenting females, they're a bit safe. Now for feminine presenting men and trans women, it's not the same story because uh, um, I could attribute this to the patriarchy and how you know it's, it's, it, it would be deemed as, or seen as a, a disgrace, quote unquote, for a man to try to appear feminine or to, to try to be quote unquote a woman. And so that would be, the chances of trans women and feminine gay men um, being uh, violated are much higher than it is for, um, I would say masculine of center women or feminine, um, masculine of center women. Yeah. yeah. The, I know that the, the UN, um, you know, they're, they're implementing this, what they call like the gender identity framework um, and they're, they're trying to implement that throughout the world as a social justice model, um, which is based on on queer theory ideas. But but they but they're the they, the report that they released is saying that that gender identity framework is improving the quality of life for gay and lesbian people um, throughout the world. And I you know I think the reason why that might be is is you know related to what you're describing that in many places in the world it's not safe to be a gay or lesbian person certainly not an um just a naturally gender non-conforming gay or lesbian person so i mean i mean it sounds from what you're describing like your quality of life having transition and presenting as as male has made you somewhat safer and improved the quality of life where you you know in in the context in which you're living because it, i mean is, is, am i correct in 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 saying that yes definitely my quality of life has improved because when i i no longer face the challenges i faced before because i know i mentioned earlier that you know the chances of um experiencing violence as a masculine presenting um gay or lesbian uh, sorry um lesbian or woman are low but they're still there they're, and the, it's very real. The violence is still very real because um, it takes just, you know, it's the tiny things. Like if you're a masculine presenting woman walking with another woman, that could easily make you a target of violence. So you particularly only find safety, for example, in sports circles or, in, you know, and outside of those sports circles, you'd still have to deal with society. And so the, the, um, the possibility of experiencing violence is also, you know, very real. Um, but Post-transition, I can say, <laughs> I think what, even two months into my, my transition, three months in, 
Um, no one was questioning my, my, my gender. No one was questioning my sexuality. Um, yes, I was living, I'm, I'm a much, I'm, I'm in a safe space. However, I can't say that it's entirely safe because the moment I am discovered to be a trans man, that comes with its own um, issues of safety. Um, I still face uh, the possibility of having correct, some form of corrective therapy, um, mob, mob justice, mob violence, um, being arrested on the accounts of impersonation. And so it's, it's um, to say that my quality of life has improved, it's, it's a bit, it's kind of tough to answer that one because has your quality of life improved if there's still a very possible chance or, or real chance of you experiencing violence? There's that, it's a, it's a real fear, it's a real fear. Um, but at the same time, yes, until I'm discovered as a trans man or until it's, it's, it's public knowledge, as much as I'm as visible as it gets, but I'm also very private, um, I am safe, so to speak. But the safety is fickle and it's very fragile and it takes just a moment for that to, to all disappear. So it's a, it's a bit of a double bind there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say that that's, that's probably true in, in a lot of places. I mean, even in North America, we're not we're not free of all homophobia or discrimination for gender nonconformity, and and so I think that's that is why a lot of trans people live. You know, what the word we use here is stealth. You know, that that they just try to blend into the world as best as best possible, and and that is largely for safety reasons. Um, that we're not necessarily we don't know as we're moving through the world who is is um, a safe person and who isn't based on you know on our gender nonconformity. Um, but of course, pe- you know, listeners are, are also probably, you know, as as is on my mind. I mean, it's unfortunate that, um, you know, that, that that as as a masculine presenting female, that that you were beaten and and um, that you live in that environment in which that's not safe. Um, so I think the pushback on this uh, gender identity model is is it's unfortunate that people um, aren't safe to just be gender nonconforming in various places around the world. So are there efforts in Uganda to make things safer and more acceptable for, for gay and lesbian people there? Um, yes, the efforts are being um, done by an organizations that work within the community. It's, it's an, an allies. There's so much that allies can do. Occasionally, they're also worried about their own safety. And so the onus and burden is on the community, which is already disenfranchised, you know, to kind of propel um, for our health and rights. Um, and it's, it's, it's difficult, right? Because uh, access to funding is, is, is a challenge. Um, getting the right stakeholders on board to support us is also a challenge. Um, I don't know if you had about the recent elections and how you know the community was used as a scapegoat um, for the, uh, by the by our president to say that um, you know uh, we're being funded by foreign entities and so we shouldn't be trusted and you know saying such statements then you know kind of gives the the public permission to continue their hatred towards us thinking you know we're not part of society because a lot of misconceptions around gender diversity and sexuality. One of them being that it's a foreign concept, uh, which is not true, but um, being popular opinion, you know, these things kind of fly, but they have real life consequences for, uh, for the people on the ground. So 
the, the organization, civil society and different activist groups are coming together to try and push for the kind of change we want to see. There's been a lot of setbacks, but um, there is resilience within the community. There is an, an endurance and there's lots of pushback and there's a togetherness within the community as well, um, because there's the, the realization that, you know, we're in this alone, um, but we, we're in it together. And so we believe that we can achieve more. And that's been the attitude that's been going around at least for the past three to four years. There's a lot of togetherness. Um, there's a lot of structural changes that are happening. We're trying to get um, government entities like the Ministry of Health that has some progressive policies right now that recognize trans people in their policies, which is great. Um, and so they're small steps, but they're also, they count because all the small victories we believe will lead to um, the world that we want to see. So, as far as your um, like identification, or does your identification still say you know F for female or M for male, or or some other marker? Um, <laughs> my ID is kind of confusing. <laughs> it has a, a male gender marker, but my citizen number has a female sex allocation which is interesting, but uh, yeah. So occasionally I get, uh, cause you know, if, if you're a male, you have a, um, an M at the beginning of your identification number. If you're female, you have an F. So every now and then that's separate from the gender marker. So every now and then uh, people ask, are you sure this is not? And I'm like, eh, it's a mistake, but it is what it is because uh, yeah. Try to have those conversations when you're trying to open a bank account, for example, <laughs> don't necessarily end well. You end up going to the managerial level and then they start asking you for more legal documents. And even if you produce them, they could just have bias towards you. So it's just, it's, like, it's easy to be as stealth as you can be for security purposes, like you said. Ideally, that's not what I would want, but um, there's also the issue of at what point do we want to create um, a lot of voice around this issue because on one hand there are trans people who are like look if I could just get my ID I don't care about the rest just give me an ID so I don't have to uh, navigate this world with a female on my ID card while looking like a male or a male on my ID card while I'm a female and so and then there's the other half that's saying you know let's just burn it to the ground let's go and be activists about this if we don't get what we want now uh, give it to us now give us liberty or give us that and so trying to find that the in between where you know people still have access to these services how, however we can access them within the legal framework um, while still pushing for the actual change we want to see is kind of in the works at the moment it's something we're trying to work on of course yeah because i mean ideally nobody should be unsafe right for just being themselves i mean even before you transition like as a mas just masculine presenting female that sh you know ideally that that's permissible without any violence or discrimination and and so that's still it's still a worthwhile pursuit to to fight for for those kinds of civil liberties and acceptance but i think what people need to understand is we need to do what we have to do just to get through day to day as well right i mean changes in an entire nation or an entire culture take time and we need to be safe yeah. in the meantime yeah so i mean that 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 is the tension between those those two uh, polar um polar positions right is that yes we want the change 
we need it, right? These are our rights, these are basic human rights. And that's the framework we use when we're addressing these issues. Um, however, in the meantime, people also need to live their lives um, in the safest way possible. We're kind of tired of, of LGBT deaths in the community. Um, what does safety look like? So we're trying to reimagine what it looks like to be alive and to thrive in systems that are hell-bent on oppressing us and to actively work towards the goal we want to achieve while maintaining our livelihoods. And so that, that, that's the challenge. Um, and that's what we keep trying to address. So that beautiful nexus where we all get what we want is what we're trying to do. It's tough, but uh, we don't stop trying. It is tough. I mean, of course, we don't want a world in which every gay and lesbian person has to transition to the opposite sex in order to be safe. So, so that's yes, that's yes, yeah. no, <laughs> no. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, that's not the narrative we are we are pushing because um, diversity should be just that, right? And it should occur how it occurs. And I'm one of the people who believes that. Um, it's not a one size fits all, you know, uh, medical options are there for those who need them. Um, but I also strongly believe that if society was tolerant, then people would not have to think about, um, uh, you know, me uh, medical interventions as a form of safety, whether it would come from medical interventions from a point of need and necessity uh, for one's healthcare, right? And so, yeah, it, it, I really wouldn't want people to, go through any drastic changes just to be safe. And that's why um, the social change aspect of the work that we do is also very important. That's fantastic that you're involved in doing that work. I'm surprised your government allows you to change your gender marker. I mean, just based on what you're describing as, as being so conservative mm -hmm. and, and not tolerant of gender diversity, it, it, it surprises me that they let you change, change the, the gender marker on your ID. Was that a difficult process? Um, it wasn't difficult because uh, one, what, okay, for starters, we don't have any trans frame, trans legal framework, right? So we don't have a legal framework that is specific to trans, um, uh, trans needs. So, you know, what, if I ask myself, what's the process that I need to go through legally as a trans person to get these changes, there is none. However, within our legal provisions, there is space to change your particulars, right? And in that space, depending on how you're perceived by the person who's going to stamp your papers, it is quite possible to change um, your, your particulars. There is a framework for intersex persons, but there is none for trans, trans persons. Um, and if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it, it has a kind of age limit to it, I think. So there are, bit, there are a bit of challenges there as well. So some of the work we're doing is to kind of, you know, talk to um, other intersex organizations and people to see, okay, how can we use what's already there to kind of develop something that's a bit more comprehensive so that I, for example, I exist in a blurry space. Yes, legally, I am legally male and I've used the legal processes as is, but there is no specific legal mechanism for trans, um, trans legal changes that need to be had. And so, that could go either way, you know, the government could decide, okay, we're going to validate um, your ID on the basis that we don't have a trans legal framework, or they could say, actually, um, the framework is there, we just need to adjust it to make sure that, you know, the specificity, uh, the specificity, specificity, sorry, of trans issues is included in the already existing framework. So it's, it's a bit of a blurry space. 
Um, and so the other thing that helped me is that I've already, I'd already started my medical transition. So if I walked into the space um, as a perceived female um, asking for um, my particulars to be changed, I would be kicked out. Um, I'm pretty sure of that it will not have happened. So the medical um, changes really did help. Sorry, with regards to um, my ability to get my national ID. Okay. Are you um, familiar with what other countries in Africa are doing and, and how they're managing that? Uh, I am somewhat familiar with what South Africa is doing. They're a bit more progressive. Uh, they have legal frameworks for trans recognition. And we're trying to have conversations with them to try and understand how we can push for that as well. I'm not so sure about, I think Kenya is also a bit more progressive. Um, and so we could definitely learn from them as well. So I know Kenya and South Africa are definitely more progressive. However, they also have their own challenges that they're working on, but I'm very hopeful. And so I believe we can learn a lot from them and how they've managed to address this. I remember in, in I mean, different cultures are so different and, um, you know, one of the things I noticed in, in Kenya was um, seeing men openly walking, you know, walking down the streets, holding hands and, and, and stuff. But I was told that that wasn't necessarily because they were gay, but that, that, that it was just socially acceptable for men to show each other affection in public. There. So it's um, just interesting how different, different things are permissible in different cultures. Definitely. Um, we have a heavy, heavily religious society. Um, and so even um, what would be considered as cultural, um, it, it's kind of put at the background. You know, there's culture at the background and then religious at the religious um, thoughts at the foreground. So even if we have cultures that are more tolerant of um, gender diversity and sexual diversity, it's not something that would be open knowledge because in doing that, you would join the minority. And, you know, culture is not, is not um, we don't heavily, um, I would say, in my opinion, we don't heavily appreciate uh, the depths of our cultures because, you know, the religious space has kind of pushed that to the background. It's been given negative, um, negative connotations like witchcraft, you know, what was seen as cultural, um, cultural um, and, and tribalistic, rituals are seen as, as witchcraft and so because of that there's a lot of negative connotation around culture so even if there is sexual diversity and gender diversity in some of our cultures it's not something that would be openly spoken about or something that would be celebrated because of the, the religious foreground of our, our thought processes. I mean one of the things that's happened here in in North America is um, you know we made a lot of progress as far as lesbian rights and um, gender nonconformity and and um, and trans as well as a treatment for for gender dysphoria. It, but it seems like we, we're sliding backwards because you know it's like too much of a good thing. It, it, like the, the queer theory has has created some problems for us here. Um, you know because when we were in a similar position that you're describing, that changing our gender marker on our ID and becoming legally uh, the opposite sex was initially about our safety. It wasn't safe for us to move around the world and constantly be outing ourselves every time we needed to show our, our identification. And um, 
but it's it's creating problems for us here and a backlash against the LGBT because we've we've taken it too far to such an extreme that um I mean I'm I'm well aware of the fact that I'm not biologically male and that's not something that I've ever been confused about um that having my gender marker on my id was about safety um not because i actually believed i was male and you know biologically and in every sense um but it's caused problems here um especially for for women um and women's safety and women's fairness you know and things like like sports i mean biology in certain in very specific certain um circumstances biology is important i mean men on average are bigger, stronger, faster than women and have an unfair advantage biologically. Um, so it's it, it's causing a lot of friction here um, because we have no way of protecting the rights of trans people in a way that isn't infringing on the rights of, of anyone else. And, and that's the big problem that we're gonna have to solve in, in the coming years. And I don't know what that's going to mean exactly, you know, whether that's a change on our ID somehow that, that that's with, so that we still have a way of recording our biological sex somehow on medical records and things like that. Um, so, and it seems to be the, mostly the result of, of queer theory that a lot of people have taken things too far. So it's hard to get that balance right of, of balancing your safety and the ability for you to, to be safe and move through the world and, and feel comfortable and as yourself without without causing a backlash. True. Very true. I've uh, been privy to some of the conversations that have been happening, at least um, from um, more developed countries. And I have heard about the backlash, especially in the, the sports um, space. And um, it's, it's one of those things for me where I, <sighs> we are where we are right now, right? And if more developed countries are dealing with this, it's only a matter of time when all of these conversations are going to be weaponized against us, you know? And it's, it's a dangerous space to be in. Um, I remember when I told you that my national ID has a CF, as a citizen female, but then my gender marker is male. I remember telling my partner then that this is an actual, it's an accurate ID for me, right? The problem comes in when it's, you know, when I have to deal with other people who at the back of their minds, you know, they're seeing a perceived male, they don't understand trans issues. So there's no way in their heads, they're going to wrap their head around what this means. But I found it as if, I found it a nice space to just begin having the conversations of can we have specific markers? You know, because even when I go to see my doctor, I am not examined uh, through this, the, the lens of a, a biological male. And that, that will never happen, regardless of, of, of anything, because I am a biological female, right? And so if we are having narratives that erase um, the, the truth, what's tangible, what we can actually quantify, then it becomes difficult to have conversations, at least I think rational conversations with different people, right? Um, what happens when you see a trans man who gets pregnant walking down the streets? You know, we're not having those conversations. What happens if a trans man gets pregnant? Which doctor will he go to? I think it's unfortunate that the queer theory, albeit even if it came from a a, a good space, a space of embracing diversity, 
is being used to um, justify things that do not kind of hold water, or at least we're not taking a rational uh, perspective to some of these issues, because the more you think about them, the more you realize that it's not a black, we don't, we can't have a blanket situation to these things. Like we can't just have trans women uh, being, um, you know, in biological, having, having spots with, you know, going to spots with biological uh, males. Uh, sorry, females, and we can't have um, trans men having, you know, going to have sports with biological, biological males. Like, what, what does that look like? And if, if that is to happen, then is there a possibility to have, you know, for both parties to accept? Okay, we, we want to have this kind of sports, um, um, this kind of sports with, with a mixture of kind of, you know, trans and and, and bio people. You know, it's it's a more nuanced thing because. When we talk about fairness, you know, if there's a, an incredible advantage or disadvantage on one party's side, it kind of takes away from the spirit of fairness, I believe, in sports. And so, you know, if we could have more nuanced approaches to this, it's not to say that it can't happen. It's just to say that we can't budge into spaces that are not tailored to the needs, you know, both both needs. It can't be a one-size-fits-all, I think. And I do know that that backlash is going to trickle down to us as well um, because trans issues are generally not understood. Um, so I believe it's going to trickle down because we're already in a space where trans issues are not understood, right? And when we come up with blanket statements um, that don't take into account nuance, then it gets really hard to have the difficult question, the difficult, difficult conversations, like what does actual trans healthcare look like? What does a... Um, a trans, you know, a trans, um, a trans legal approach look like that, that that encompasses all these different aspects of the trans experience. What does um, um, fairness in sports, for example, look like for trans? What does gender equality look like when we're talking about, for example, in Uganda, when you talk about gender, the first thing people think about is women, right? So it's like gender equals women. And so we're not even having conversations about gender diversity. So if uh, basically, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's going to trickle down and the backlash is going to trickle down. And I worry for trans people and our safety. It's already not safe. So many strides have been made at a global and on a global level. Um, and, you know, you know, those of us in the global south always hold on to the, the strides at a, you know, at a broader level, because then we try to figure out how can we maximize the global conversations to then localize it and tailor it to, to bits and pieces that our people can understand and you know, not push back against. But it gets difficult to get to that space when there's so much, um, so much tension and not enough cohesion. So yeah, this is just my random thought around, around the issue. Yeah, I, I I worry about that too. Just you know, what in terms like hopefully you can avoid some of the mistakes that we made, um, you know, to to try to um, to make things more nuanced and fair. But it's it's hard to be nuanced when there are safety considerations, uh, you know, because nuance requires that we admit, okay, you know, I'm biologically female, um, and if but if it's not safe for you to admit that then it's going to be hard it's going to be hard then to negotiate fair and nuanced solutions so i imagine the safety the safety issue has to come first definitely safety first especially because we're coming from a space of violence and oppression and if that's something you have known for most of your life 
then the moment you experience safety, you don't want to trade that for anything else. It's like life or death, safety or, you know, or death. And then those are the comparisons that you have to make. And so, you know, I think it's, it's a very delicate space and one that has to be treated with absolute care because of its delicacy. Um, and if we don't, if we're not able to do that, we're trying not to make the same mistakes. But again, like I said, the conversations that happen on the global level trickle down. And so then we have, you know, polarized uh, opinions of, of the matter of what is and what isn't. Yeah, so um, it's a very delicate issue. Um, and definitely nuance has to take into account, account the environmental factors, social factors, um, health factors, individual factors, and what that looks like to really integrate in society um, grounded in truth, you know, grounded in truth and reality and something tangible that we can, we can you know, measure and quantify. Because I believe, you know, theories, practical solutions, you actually have to have something tangible to work with. Uh, but we won't get there if, 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 we, if we continue to have these conversations in a thought space and not incorporate what practicability looks like, um, catering to actually realities, what's actually on ground, uh, where we want to go versus what's actually on ground and what we can do to make sure that, you know, those two meet in the middle. Are there many trans people that you're like? How many how many trans people are you representing through your organization? And do you have a sense of how many trans people are in Uganda? No, we have a sense of how many gender non-conforming people are there, um, but it's difficult to know how many, um, for example, transsexuals. You know, and then I use that specifically to mean those who require need and will have medical interventions at some point in their lives. Vis-a-vis um, -vis those who, who don't, I guess, would exist in a more transgender umbrella space, vis-a-vis -vis those who are questioning, vis-a-vis -vis those who are just expressing who they are, who don't necessarily even, you know, consider it a gender nonconformity situation. Uh, it's just expression, you know, like um, I'm wearing boots today, it has nothing to do with my agenda. So it's difficult to to pinpoint a specific number. But I would start by saying in terms of gender nonconformity in the country, we're looking at over 100 people, about over 100. Yeah. And that's encompassing of everyone, transsexuals, transgender people, uh, people are just expressing what society deems as uh, other, and you know, et cetera. Is queer theory, um trickling into Uganda? Like, a, a, is it something that people can study in university and learn about? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, there's not, there's not going to be a single conversation around, you know, I mean, my curriculum, at least the university curriculum up to date from the School of Psychology is still teaching homosexuality as a deviant behavior as opposed to existing on a, a spectrum of human sexuality. And it's only a few scholars who have come out to challenge this, one of them being Sylvia, Professor Sylvia Tamane, um, who have come out to even write books about uh, diversity in Africa, pre-colonial, uh, in the pre-colonial era, to kind of dispute the, um, the, 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 um, the misconception that, that, that uh, gender diversity and, and sex, sexual diversity is foreign, is a foreign concept. 
Um, but even then, they are they are the sole people. They are standing against the crowd uh, together with the community. So it's not something that's actively taught. And in order to have access to queer theory, it would be it would be an elitist kind of space because you'd have to have access to internet, access to this information, access to an organization that is speaking about queer theory um, as an actual you know as part of their mandate which is something that I don't think any organization is doing. It's just something that will pass in conversation among academics and researchers. And so the people in the rural areas are definitely not going to be interfacing with queer theory. However, because um, its influence is happening at a global level, these things trickle down and some of them are watered down and they do cause a lot of confusion eventually. And so that's what I mean when I say, you know, it may be happening on a global level, but it also affects us, especially because one, we do not have the access to kind of shift those narratives at a global level or to challenge them from an African perspective. And so it becomes difficult to even feel connected to the kind of the, the global waves that are happening. So what we do in response is to try and pick the bits and pieces that we feel that's, you know, the organizations that are paying attention to this is to pick the bits and pieces that they feel they can work with to start changing conversations on ground. Yeah, but it's definitely not taught in, 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 uh, um, in organizations, in universities, or it's not something that would be mainstream. It would be the pri few privileged to have access to internet or academics, uh, researchers, who know about this uh, feminist within the country as well, who are interfacing with um, queer theory. So those are the small spaces in which you're doing that. You know, and, and every country has, you know, you got your, your academics in the universities and then, you know, the idea is that those ideas trickle down into the rest of, of society, but queer theory doesn't trickle down very well in, um, you know, the, when you think of every little town that, that's here, every little culture that's here, um, social classes, you know, like the working class people in a remote town somewhere, they hear about queer theory and they're like, it's, it's such a completely bizarre and, and foreign thing for them. And it doesn't fit well um, from culture to culture. So I, I can only imagine, you know, if you uh, had an academic who went into some of the villages there and, and started talking about queer theory um i don't imagine that would go over well it doesn't fit you know with with people's worldview and their cultures yes definitely um some of the you know, some of the work i've done for example around feminist back we get is you know at the end of the day someone will come and tell you i don't need this big thing that you've come to tell me i live this every day i I believe in empowerment of other women and I, I don't need a theory, this yeah. kind of complicated theory to do something that is my lived reality. And so definitely if you went and started talking to people in the more rural areas about queer theory, their first question will be in the local, and this would be a direct translation, where does it touch on me? I don't ask you, what does that have to do with my lived reality? And so, yes, it definitely doesn't, um, it, it's kind of, I find it unfortunate that it's being used as the end all be all for the, uh, the global discourse. Um, and I find it a, a bit hypocritical when you don't have multiple voices coming in to talk about their experiences, because then instead of using um, this framework that's limited to a specific um, social class and group of, of academics, you have a more diverse kind of pool of 
of knowledge. And from that, then we can even start to you know, think about conversations that integrate this nuance, because I mean, we could learn from the rural communities, what, what did it mean to integrate gender and sexual diversity? Yeah, into their frameworks and into their communities. And why can't that be replicated on a global level? Why must we use a theory that is so pulled apart from the lived realities of people and then call it global discourse, <laughs> right? It's, it's not global, <laughs> it doesn't feel global. Well, a lot yeah. of communities experience, you know, when, when activists are pushing queer theory, a lot of communities and cultures experience that as a kind of cultural colonization because it it's because it doesn't fit well with with a lot of cultures and worldviews, and if people like governments um, are forcing pe- forcing these theories onto people, it it changes and destroys cultures, and I, I don't feel like as a trans person that I want to colonize and destroy other cultures. I mean, we exist as trans people in many different cultures and we want to integrate into our cultures, not not have the whole culture completely destroyed and changed in order to accommodate us. Because of course people are gonna be angry about that. Every, every culture that's been colonized and had their cultures um, and language destroyed is angry about that. So why would I want to impose that upon other cultures? Definitely, definitely. It, it's really unfortunate. Um, because even even in the, the, the frame of queer theory framework, there's a lot of diversity that is is not taken into account for. And as a group that has, I think, historically thrived on diversity, it is and you know our appreciation for you know the buffet of diversity. It's unfortunate that we're now trying to cramp up all this 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 beautiful spectrum into something that is more palatable. You know, and the question is for who and why, you know, um, and I don't think we're answering those questions deeply enough, because if it's for us, then it should reflect that, but it doesn't. So the question then is, who is it for and why? Because if it's, the bet- if it's for the betterment of, of if, if the goal is the betterment of trans lives, then that's, that's not what you're achieving, you know, by trying to, to become more palatable or to say, ah, this makes more sense for us. And so we're going to lump everyone under it. So yeah, I think it's a great disservice for sure. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's, I think it's one of the biggest mistakes that we made and are continuing to make here in, in North America is, is really framing all trans identities as being about queer theory and, and pushing queer theory onto the world. Um, it's causing more harm and more backlash than, than, it's, than it's been worth. So I'm, I'm really happy to hear that, uh, that you have a much more nuanced and realistic perspective on it. I think that'll serve, you know, Uganda well as, as you continue to work on creating space and diversity for yourself. Thank you. Do the best we can. <laughs> um, How large is your organization? Is it, is it um, just you or are there others working with you? I have a team of five people. Uh, we're always hiring volunteers from the community. We're very deliberate about hiring from the community. So one of the things we also say is, you know, you don't have to be a chief professional. You just have to be willing to work um, because it's it's part of our, it's kind of part of our, how we give back to the community. If we can grow with the community, um, give them the skills they need in the organization, 
then you know they'll be better for it. Um, like I mentioned, you know, employment, getting employment as a queer person is hard, especially in, in the space where you want to express yourself, be seen, be heard, be valued. And so, you know, we're very intentional about making sure that the people we hire come from the community. Um, so we're 100% LGBTQ led. Um, Besides some of our board members who are strong allies of the community, but um, I would say 99, 90% of our, our team is LGBT, um, LGBT led. Yeah. As far as the medical parts of your transition, was it difficult to access um, hormones and surgeries there? Yes. Um, I had to do lots of research. I uh, had to educate my doctor, which was not, uh, it's not good. <laughs> you don't want to educate your doctor. You, you want to your doctor to kind of know. And uh, and at least you expect a mutual kind of uh, experience. But um, they were kind enough to um, say, hey, I don't know. And, you know, they're honest, I don't know as much, but I'm willing to learn. And so we walked the journey with them. At the moment, we put them in touch with um gender dynamics they have these trainings for healthcare professionals uh, where they train them on how to do uh, how to treat um, trans people what to do and what not to do and so now we keep we, if we get someone who is willing to learn from the healthcare space we just you know funnel them into more spaces where they can learn more um, and this is all based on you know my personal experience with trying to reach out to healthcare professionals getting a lot of backlash um, a lot of you know negative comments, but eventually I got a few who are willing to work with the community, open to it, and so it's a walk. We walk with them, so I walk the journey with them. So it was difficult to get access to hormones, but eventually I did. I got a prescription. Um, I had my surgery in Uganda as well, and if I'm, I I think I'd be the first trans man to have the surgery in Uganda, as far as I'm concerned, because prior to that. Um, all the people who killed the transport before me had to move to Kenya, had to go to Kenya or to other countries to have their surgeries. And so that for me was a pivotal moment because then we start to have conversations around making healthcare more accessible. So it was hard, but I was equally determined. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and I had a great social, um, I have a great social space of friends and chosen family who have supported me the whole way. Uh, so that's why I consider myself really privileged. Um, and so I just, you know, I want to use my privilege to open more doors, regardless of the backlash I made face. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what does, you mentioned chosen family. What does your, what does your um, biological family think of, of all of this? Uh, I'm not sure they know, but they could know. It's a small country. <laughs> um, I was kicked out at a young age. I was just um, as a young adult. Um, and so I had to kind of figure out, I had I was given terms and conditions to have access to my education. I had to go through conversion therapy, which was weird um, for the counselor. And it was ironic because I was trying to get into the field of mental health. And so it, it, was, it was a difficult situation back then. Um, and so we, I cut ties with them um, because, like I mentioned, I'd experienced violence at the hand of my family. It was impossible to, biological family, it was impossible to express myself. Um, I was meant, I felt like a creep the whole time, like weird. And there was really no space to be myself. And so um, I, I cut them off. 
intentionally. So that was my decision. Um, we were on semi-speaking terms, but then eventually it just got, it was not good for me. It felt, it, yeah, it wasn't great for my mental health. Um, it, it felt like I, was, I kept going back to my abusers, some weird kind of Stockholm, right? And so I just, I couldn't do it because I always felt terrible afterward. I felt undervalued. Um, I felt unseen. And so, you know, we cut ties and I've been living my life with my chosen family and then my close friends since, who have been so supportive. Um, even those who were like, I don't get it, but I love you and I, that's enough. You know, and that, that goes a long way for, 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 for me, it went a long way. Um, I didn't need to be validated. I just needed to be given space to exist. And so that's what my, that's the grace I have been given for my, my chosen family and, and my social support. Wonderful. I'm glad you found that chosen family and, and that you feel well supported by by somebody. That's that's the most important thing, right? Is that we have community and um and experience love and support from other people. Definitely, definitely. Goes a long way. It does. Yeah. Yeah, I mean your story is is uh is amazing. Um and you know, thank you so much for for agreeing to to come on and and talk to me and, and share you know this piece of your life with with our audience our viewers and it's been a pleasure to meet you uh, thank you thank you for having me it's been an honor to be on this space i am very happy i'm proud of the work that the agenda dysphoria alliance is doing i am one of your fans <laughs> big fans um and i find it uh, quite i find what you're doing powerful you know because you are speaking against the norm and you're trying to bring rationale back into a space that I feel is kind of all over the place um, and not really trying to have actionable uh, goals that can be met, that are realistic um, and measurable and attainable. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that you created this space for me. And I'm so proud of the work that GDA is doing. And I really am rooting for you. I'm rooting for you. I really am. <laughs> And thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. That that feedback is is wonderful to hear. You know, and and I hope that the work that we're doing here will will help prevent some of the trickle down backlash for you and and those like you. Like we need to solve our problems here, so that they don't get used against you as you're trying to build some kind of some kind of space and, and infrastructure for yourself in in other places. So hopefully. Yeah. Um, because what we do, it, it, we are a whole global community, right? What we do here does impact what happens elsewhere in the world. So, so thank you for that feedback. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.